Hi everyone, this is Christy here to let you know that about 50% of the U.S. population experience math anxiety. It affects women more than men and can start as young as five, and then it tends to snowball as kids get older. Struggling in math can affect a student's entire school, career, and life trajectory. So today's guest, as well as today's sponsor, are here to help. Our sponsor today is Pay2Day Math, creating unique math fluency practice kits for students in pre-K through fifth grades. The incremental cumulative practice builds essential addition, subtraction, multiplication, and division fluency, and the award-winning practice supports all K-5 math curriculum. The easy-to-use kits can be done in the classroom or at home and provide six months of daily practice. The adorable design, built-in rewards, and cheerful math squad superheroes keep students engaged and motivated and turns math into a rewarding and fun experience. Page-a-day math kits are guaranteed to improve math fluency and math handwriting and bring out every child's math superpowers. You can find them at edcuration.com. You're listening to the Ed Curation Podcast. We bring you stories from educational leaders about the instructional resources, practices, and movements that are reshaping learning. It's a little bit of social work, a little bit of science, and a little bit of passion. The most valuable resource is also their time. It just can't be wasted on fluff. But we have to be able to continuously poll our students and just give them voice. We have to pick texts that are totally going to push their thinking. My conversation with today's guest was full of surprises. Juliana Tapper is an experienced classroom teacher, mentor, peer learning community facilitator, professional developer, and instructional coach. In 2018, Juliana founded Collaborate Ed and has partnered with over 40 schools to provide relevant professional development, coaching, and resources for grades six through 12 teachers who work with students who struggle with math. I expected her to tell me that she'd always loved math and had always been good at it, but that is not what happened. Juliana, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me here. I just found out when this call started that you taught at the high school that I attended. And I'm not going to say anything about what was probably the gap in the number of years that went by between those two events, but I'm excited that you that we have that in common. So tell us a little bit more about your history. Yes, that was a fun thing to find out about each other. I got into education because I'm passionate about working with underserved communities and really helping students access education that might not typically have had that access. And so I got my credential and my master's at UCLA. And the program required that you work in a Title I school while you were finishing your master's. So I student taught at Compton High School in Compton, California. And then... Juliana went on to teach at schools in South Central Los Angeles and San Jose. And then she moved into instructional coaching where she discovered that she was really only interested in working with math teachers. So the next year... The math teacher on special assignment role, the TOSA role came up. 
And that was really such a wonderful job. I love that job. I did coaching. I did PD for all the math teachers at all the 13 high schools and really started working with the special ed math teachers. And so that really grew my passion for special education mathematics. Love that job. But we moved to Colorado in 2017. I'm so curious about your love of math. You found out that it was really just math and math teachers that were your passion. You were going to focus in on that. Have you always been a math person? Did you love math as a student? Did you love math growing up? And if so, why? Yeah, I actually did not like math. I actually really struggled with math. So in middle school, I had a tutor because I was struggling in middle school math and my mom was pushy about getting me on the college track. And my tutor called me stupid to my face in middle school. Hold on. I just need to stop there and offer a career tip. If you are an angry, tactless, and cruel individual, please don't take a job tutoring children. There are so many other options where you won't do damage. I really was not good at math, did not consider myself a math person, and just kind of, you know, got through it in high school and college. It was not a a passion of mine. And what actually drew me to teaching was, I was an AVID tutor for the AVID program. And I noticed in East San Jose, right after college, I was tutoring. And I realized, like, I I knew that I wanted to help communities that have been historically underserved. And I realized all of my kids that I was tutoring were struggling with math and that math was keeping them from graduating from high school. And Algebra 1 was that gatekeeper subject. And that weighed heavy on my heart. And so I said... I need to become a math teacher. (laughs) And that's actually why I became a math teacher was more of a desire to help, you know, my students to be able to access college and graduate from high school if that's what they wanted. That's so interesting, Juliana, because I feel like, you know, being called stupid by your tutor and having struggled in that subject is traumatic. Yeah. And a lot of kids have anxiety around math because either they've had a bad experience or they just felt that struggle of not feeling successful. I feel like it drives us in one of two ways. We just say, okay, well, that's not my subject and I'm going to run as far away from that as I can. And I'm going to structure my life in ways that allow me to avoid that thing. Or they do what you do, which was run toward it and say, this is a challenge. This is a mountain. This is something that I need to tackle. I don't want other people to struggle in the way that I did. So I'm going to run toward that thing. Do you find it seems like a common belief and it's an erroneous belief, I think, that although for for many years of my life, I adhered to this idea that you have a math brain or you don't have a math brain. You're a math person or you're not a math person. And that line is clear cut. Just like we used to think that our brains were hardwired, and now we know that they're not, neuroplasticity and all of that. What do you say to that still very strongly held belief by many people? How do you respond to that? Yeah, I. it comes up all the time. It comes up as adults. It comes up with students. And I am really into Joe Bowler's work out of Stanford University, Dr. Joe Bowler. She's written a number of amazing math books to help us with better instructional practices in mathematics. But she also is really into fostering a growth mindset for our students in math. And 
She has some great little clips that we can show our students, but also benefit from as adults that remind us that our brains can grow and change and that there is no such thing as a math gene. And she really goes through the science behind all of that. So it's okay that math is hard for us, but it doesn't mean that we're not a math person or that we should just give up. How did you overcome your own challenges in math? Because you said it was not an easy subject for you and you didn't like it. Yeah, I think, I mean, in high school, I had some better math teachers. And so that was really helpful. They were understanding. They never made me feel stupid. So that was a good thing. But, you know, I, I had the motivation that I knew that I wanted to go to college. And, and so I, I have to graduate from high school. I have to do well in my classes in college in math. And that was enough to kind of motivate me to, to make it through. There are so many students and adults who struggle with math and not, not necessarily because of learning disabilities. I mean, some of them do have specific learning challenges, but just in general, in the general population, there's just a really high proportion of people who consider themselves not good at math or they just don't like it. Why is math so specific? Yeah, I know. I think there's really two things that I've at least seen, you know, in my experience. One of them being that I think sometimes our math teachers become math teachers because they love math so much and it was always easy for them. And sometimes I think it can be really challenging for those teachers to teach the students who have had a different math past and maybe struggled with math in the past or math hasn't been so easy for them. And so I, I don't think that teachers do it consciously. I think it's completely subconscious, but it's something that I've noticed with the, the teachers that I've worked with. And then I think another thing that goes into it, and you kind of hit on this earlier, you mentioned math anxiety, and that's actually like a proven thing. I mentioned Dr. Jo Bowler, and she has a wonderful research paper on math anxiety, specifically for students with learning differences. But I go back to that research paper all the time because it's just a treasure trove of information about what math anxiety is and why my like how it manifests in my students. And my experience is high school. I've always taught high school, you know, and I've I've worked with middle school and high school teachers. And so I'm going to speak to kind of that experience of being later in in your education career and struggling with math. But you know, a lot of students started failing math in middle school around sixth or seventh grade when variables got introduced and they grew that math anxiety and they grew these, this math baggage kind of, if you will, that they've brought with them to high school. And they might have, you know, by the time they're taking algebra one as a ninth grader, they have possibly failed math for two years, three years already. And that can't feel good. You know, so it's it's bringing the math anxiety up. It's bringing this failure up. And to sit in the same class time and time again and have it look like a foreign language, I think so many students struggle with high school math because of that painful math past and not ever having had the opportunity to share it with their current math teacher. Yeah. I mean, it just feels almost physically painful, I think. Yes. I was just doing some research for one of our blog posts and I came across a statistic that 75% of Americans will voluntarily not finish the math requirements for the career path that they've chosen or for the educational requirements for the job that they want just to avoid taking that one more or two more math classes. That's how painful it feels to them. Yeah. 
In that research paper, Dr. Joe Bowler says that when we see math, if you have math anxiety, when you see math, a fear center lights up in your brain. That's the same as the fear center that lights up when you see like a snake or something. And so if you think about if you're seeing a snake, you're not thinking about, oh, I can do this. And you're not having any of those feel good emotions. You're terrified and you're, <laughs> you're nervous and you're anxious and you're, you're not going to learn anything when your brain is feeling that way. Well, right. I mean, and you literally can't because when your fight or flight, your amygdala is responding, your attention rushes to the part of your brain for dealing with threats, right? And you literally become unable to take in new information. Yes. Or even to remember information that you already know. Yes, exactly. So many students struggle with remembering something from one day to the next. And I think what you just said is a huge part of that. I'm wondering if in that work, you have recognized some patterns like these are the concepts or these are the skills or this is the point in education where we're typically losing those kids. You mentioned a little while ago, middle school. And I feel like for the most part, kids in elementary school don't feel so unsuccessful around it. And it's straightforward arithmetic. There may be like memorization of times tables and things, but what, where are those patterns and what are those pivotal turning points that you have identified? Yeah. I mean, I think fractions is one is one thing. And that does come up in elementary school. And then again, in middle school, I know for my students, when I ask them about their math pass and where it started to go wrong, they all said middle school. They all said, you know, it was seventh grade when all of a sudden there was a variable, there were letters in my math homework, and I just didn't understand what was happening. So what are we as educators doing with that data? Do we, are we creating better resources to make sure that at that point in students' math education, we're casting a bigger net, we're bringing in other kinds of modalities? Like, what are we doing? I think that's a great question. And I think there are lots of ways that we can make variables feel more real and tangible for our students to have a better understanding of, of what a variable is and what it's doing in our math work. But I, I think it's just one of those things that's hard to get a lot of teachers on board with wanting to change how to teach math differently than how they learned math. So would you say it's that point where math goes from being concrete to being representative? So we, we're now working with symbols. We're now working with pictorial representations of things rather than you know, four blocks and three blocks put together make seven blocks is very concrete. Yes, absolutely. I completely agree with that. What do you use in your consultancy to help students make that transition from concrete to representative? Yeah, I definitely share a couple of strategies in my workshop. With my students, I would always do this too, where I would have like two plates in my hands and I would add you know, some different like counters or cubes or whatever, two different shapes to represent constants and variables and ask them say like, okay, if they if these weigh the same amount, I want this scale to be balanced and like moving my arms around to help them understand the idea of a balanced scale and then moving the objects off and like really making it more tangible in that way, giving them a physical demonstration of something like that, even if you can't buy a fancy scale to, to demonstrate it really with your kids, you can still show it with, 
with your hands and you can find some manipulatives, anything in your classroom, and then showing them how that relates to what the equation looks like. And then you eventually kind of remove that visual scaffold and just help the students to make sense of, okay, remember this was like, you know, four weights and three plates equals <laughs> four plates and one weight. And how do I balance that? So, or how much does each weight weigh? I think really helps our students. In addition to the strategies offered by Juliana, one of the keys to changing student attitudes, confidence, and achievement in math is to provide very low stakes and enjoyable opportunities to practice skills, facts, and formulas so that students develop fluency and don't fall behind and suffer learning gaps, which make it impossible for them to move forward with the cumulative grade-level content of math. Today's sponsor has created the ideal resource for this. My name is Janice Marks, and I'm the creator and CEO of Page a Day Math. As a parent and teacher, I saw my own children and countless students struggle unnecessarily with math only because they didn't have a solid math facts foundation. Once that was remedied and their math fact fluency was developed, the children turned into amazing math students and really started to feel confident. We believe that every child can be great at math, and that's why we create products that give busy parents and teachers super easy-to-use tactile products that build a child's math foundation right from the start in a way that's really engaging and never overwhelming. We are really excited to sponsor this episode. We know that parents and teachers are very worried about learning loss this year more than ever. And that's why we're excited to tell you about our math program that's being used by thousands of families helping their kids get a jump start, catch up, get ahead, and simply feel great about math and great about themselves. With Page a Day Math, it only takes a page a day to bring out every child's math superpowers. You can find Page a Day Math Kits at edcuration.com. That's E-D-C-U-R-A-T-I-O-N.com. Now, back to Juliana. With Collaborate Ed, you, you train and you coach teachers about how to engage all of their learners, regardless yep. of those learners' challenges, and to help them become more successful in math. Where do you start? When you start working with a school or a district, What do you do some kind of assessment or survey with them to figure out what they're needing? How does your work look? Yeah. I mean, usually I can get a pretty good feel from the administrators that hire me. So usually an administrator will reach out and and ask me to do it. Usually starts with just a one-day professional development with their math department or their special ed department. And I tend to really start my sessions with talking about quick math engagement strategies. So what are some strategies that teachers can use tomorrow in their classrooms to start getting engagement, discourse, hearing from every single student in their math classroom. So how can we start start to do that? And then the first day goes really well. You know, the feedback that I get is always really positive. Then usually they'll ask me to come back and do some more workshops. And that's when we can really dig into, okay, you know, for one school, it was that their Black and Brown students are failing math at higher numbers than their White and Asian students. And so do we need to talk about grading practices? Do we need to talk about equity practices? And so we kind of start with some lighthearted, you know, quick engagement strategies that teachers can see results with right away. And that helps build the trust with teachers. And then we can dig into a little bit more of the challenging work and maybe something a little more specific to each school or district. 
I would guess that that's where your positive feedback comes from because teachers love to be in a training where they're being given tools that they can immediately take and use, especially if those tools are going to address their actual questions and their actual pain points and solve real student learning problems. Exactly. And and so I love that the most common feedback I get from teachers is this workshop was so immediately useful. Love <laughs> That's it. like means the most to me. So I'm wondering if you have any more of like the best or most promising practices that you teach that some of our listeners could learn from that you'd be willing to share. Yeah, absolutely. And so one of my favorite strategies, and a lot of teachers do know about this strategy already, but it's called Which One Doesn't Belong? And it is just, it's such a powerful way to increase engagement in our classes. It starts with an image and you can go to the website wodb.ca and find a ton of these images made for free. There are image sets on there made by other math teachers that you can just pull off and put onto your Google slide. And it's four images that make up a box. And the idea is that there is not one correct answer. This isn't just like a fancy multiple choice way to ask a question about which one doesn't belong. But every single one of those images in that set could be argued doesn't belong with the set. And so you could try it with some non-math images first. So there's one with logos and I love it. It's like NBC, there's ESPN, you know, there's a couple of different logos in there. And so you have to defend why, which one doesn't belong and why. And so that just gets all the students talking, even the students who sit in the back of the room with their hoodies on, with their earbuds in. Even they're like, that one has color miss, you know, like they, they even have a way to engage in the activity. And so if, if they can even start to say anything, even if it's just about a logo at first, sometimes that is a huge win for a kid who usually doesn't participate at all in math class. And then what I love about the images on the website is that then they also have math images. So it could be numbers. It could be numbers with variables. They have a whole bunch of graphs. And so. You know, you could be looking at an image set that has four different graphs for linear inequalities. And you're looking at these graphs, you're like, well, that one's a parabola and that one's greater than or equal to all the other ones are less than or something, you know, and it creates this amazing math discourse where students are using all their math vocabulary. And it's just incredible. And it teachers are a little hesitant sometimes to try it. They're like, this seems a little weird. And like, I don't know if my kids would really engage, but I cannot tell you the number of teachers who have come back the next day and been like, I tried that with my kids and they loved it. (laughs) And it really does get everyone talking. And, And the key is that there's more than one right answer. There are so many correct answers. And that is really hard to happen in mathematics. And so the fact that you have this opportunity for students to, it's not about the answer they're getting. It's about how you're explaining your reasoning. And that's something that students really struggle to do to explain their reasoning. And this is just such a fun way to do it. Very like low barrier to entry and just creates amazing discussions, even in the virtual context. So Juliana, would you say, and I don't, I mean, you can never really generalize, but don't you think that Students are always going to be more engaged and more positive when they are invited to share their own ideas and their own thinking. And I mean, obviously, they, they, it has to be an environment where they, where they feel safe to do that, but it could be almost anything. 
Yes. And I think sometimes, you know, as math teachers, we struggle to find an opportunity to really bring that in because there is just one right answer usually. And yes, there's different ways to get to a right answer many times, but I think that's one of the biggest challenges being a math teacher and trying to create that sort of classroom culture is that the actual work itself sometimes doesn't lend itself to having that sort of open-ended response. So they don't just feel like receptacles. They're supposed to come in and sit down and like open up their head so you can pour stuff in and then go out. So talk about, because I know this is the question that people always have is, yeah, but what about, you know, like everyone thinks that they have those unreachable students that nobody else has ever had to deal with. And it's, you know, it's not true. Like we all, we all deal with the same challenges, but what are the most important things for a general ed math teacher to know about supporting their struggling math students or their sped math students? Yeah, I think there's two things really. So one of them being we have to intentionally build a classroom culture in our math classes where students who struggle, students with IEPs, students who have been historically underserved by our education system have an opportunity to share their math pass with their teacher so that they feel really seen and known by their teacher. And they know that they know that their teacher knows that they don't like math and that they've failed it and that they have a hard time with it. And it takes really being intentional about that to draw that out from our students. So I think that's one thing that gen ed teachers can be doing to support our students who struggle. Another thing is, I think we overthink, we get this list of, as a gen ed teacher myself, you know, we get this list of here are your students on 504 plans and with IEPs, and you need to be providing these accommodations for these kids. And it can get a little overwhelming to be like, oh, I have to do all this for, you know, this kid. And then I have to do all this for this kid. And instead, I would say, you know, look at the accommodations that your special education peers are are asking you to do in your classroom and just use those as best practices for all of your kids. Because there's probably a lot of students who are struggling that aren't on 504 plans, that aren't on IEPs. And if you kind of use some of those best practices that you use for your students, 504 plans and IEPs, but you make it for all of your kids, I think it's just good teaching practices sometimes. And and sometimes as gen ed math teachers, we're not as aware of those strategies that work in particular for our students on IEPs. And so, you know, instead of overthinking it, just try to integrate those into your classroom. And I think a couple of tangible examples of that that might be interesting for listeners would be like graphic organizers, you know, clear places for kids to write. Students that have dysgraphia, dyscalculia, they need to know where exactly should I be writing on this page. And so those graphic organizers can be super simple and really helpful for our kids. And another one would be using a calculator. Most of our students with IEPs, they can use them on state testing. So many state tests, even for the gen ed population, you can pull up a Desmos calculator. You can pull up a scientific calculator on these things. And so Instead of heightening our students' math anxiety when you're asking them for multiplication facts, let them use a calculator. Let them use a times table in front of them so that you're not fighting that battle. And I do have a guide on my website, and it's called 10 Math Intervention Strategies. And it's basically 10 of these strategies that you can use to support your SPED and struggling students. Yeah, it's interesting what you're saying, because I used to be a literacy coach. And 
I would lead similar kinds of workshops to what you're describing only around having students engage in texts and enhancing their writing and all of those kinds of, you know, literacy-based practices. And we always would get that same question too. And I always loved it if there was a learning specialist in the room, because when that question would come up, I would defer to them or ask them to participate in the response because I knew nine times out of 10 or even 10 times out of 10, what they were going to say is, so these things that we're doing as to carefully scaffold students' understanding are the things that I do with my special ed students. I think all of the gen ed teachers in the room would be expecting a different answer, that there was some other kind of magic thing that they could be doing for these kids. And these are just the practices that will help those students and all students. Yes, I could not agree more. There's kind of a relief in that. There, there's always an element of disappointment that it wasn't something more magic. Yes. But there's also a relief that like, oh, I, I'm doing it. I'm doing the things. Like these are the right things to be doing to support these students. So that was comforting. So the title of our podcast is Ed Curation, where we reshape learning. We collaborate with thought leaders and experts in their field like you to figure out what that would look like for kids. And I'm wondering if you have an idea of what would that look like to reshape the instruction of mathematics so that it really works well for all kids? What would be the essential components and what would it look like? Yeah, I love this. And I actually think it has a lot less to do with the mathematics and more to do about the community building in our math classrooms. And so I know I talked about it a little bit before, but to dig into it a bit more, you know, if you're teaching students who struggle with grade seven and beyond, they are coming with that math baggage. And I think that we need to create classrooms where it's safe to ask questions and to get things wrong and to say, I don't know, and to not feel judged by our math teacher. And This takes way more intentionality than I think we realize. Reshaping mathematics education would be motivated students. I think that the motivation comes from these positive classroom communities that we build. Classrooms where our students can feel safe, even though they have had so much past failure and baggage in mathematics. That's interesting because it's kind of the same answer we were just talking about on the last question that that good practices around learning are going to help all students and they're going to help in all content areas. And it all, and it comes back to culture, really. I really think it does. <laughs> and it's beautiful that so many schools are being so much more intentional and bringing in so many more resources and so much professional learning around creating positive learning environments and positive learning cultures. This is part of the work that you do with Collaborate Ed. Can, is there anything else you'd like our listeners to know about how they might work with you or what, you, or what services you provide through Collaborate Ed? Yeah. So there's kind of two ways now that I am providing services for teachers and schools and districts. And one of them is really the way I started, which is, and still the biggest part of my work, is partnering with schools and districts to provide the PD the workshops, the coaching for their math teachers, special ed or gen ed, but also their math leaders. And so it usually starts with like that one day PD. And then we can create a more robust contract where I can provide all of their training for their math teachers or their sped math teachers for the whole school year. And this is, I have found this is especially helpful for administrators 
who weren't themselves math teachers. I have found that administrators who weren't math teachers struggle to connect with their math departments the most. And so it's helpful sometimes to just bring someone in from the outside to help guide your department. Now I've also started providing more kind of direct to teacher resources. I also created a self-paced digital course and community for teachers. And so this is kind of a great option. A lot of schools were interested in having me come work with their teachers, but maybe they only have one or two special ed math teachers, or they just have that one high school intervention math teacher. And it doesn't really make sense to bring me in if it's such a small number of teachers that would be attending. And so I created this on-demand course and community for, for teachers for that. And it's called Making Math Accessible for All. And I open registration for it two times a year. And it's just a place to share all of the instructional strategies, motivation strategies, engagement strategies in a really tangible way, and then continue to provide ongoing support for those teachers through our community. Wow. I love it. I hope that a lot of our listeners can take advantage of those opportunities and resources. I'm wondering from all of your work with different districts and your many years as a teacher, if you have a favorite success story involving a specific student or teacher or classroom? So many. And I think since I have kind of focused a little bit on the classroom culture building in our chat today, that's kind of fresh on my mind. And I think about one of my own personal classroom stories where I was teaching the high school math intervention class and I had a junior in the math intervention class and he'd failed every math class since sixth grade. And we were doing an activity at the beginning of the year to explore our math pass. And in that activity, he told me that he has been ditching math class since ninth grade because he just feels so disheartened and overwhelmed and he just doesn't want to do it. He turned that into me for his assignment. And so I, I pulled him to the side and let him know that I read his paper and that I wanted it to be different this year and that I, I didn't want him to start ditching class and that if he did start ditching, if I noticed that he was not here, that I was going to follow up with him. And just to have that experience with him where he shared that with me and for us to be able to really talk about that, because then he did start ditching. And, and so to be able to bring that assignment back to him and say, you said you wanted to pass this year. You know, you're a junior. We're going to run out of time here. And that really helped him to remember why he wanted to show up to class. And he did end up passing that year. So that's definitely a success story. So great. Well, thank you so much, Juliana, for taking the time to share with our listeners today. Thank you so much for this opportunity. You'll find Juliana's contact information along with Collaborate Ed and all the resources she shared in the episode notes, where you'll also find today's sponsor, Page a Day Math. Award-winning teacher Nikki Talicki said, Helping children build number sense early gives them an advantage. The children I teach in 4th and 5th grade who have number sense are taking 6th, 7th, and 8th grade math. But those who didn't develop math facts continue to struggle. If I'd had page-a-day math from the beginning of my teaching career, I'd have had many more confident mathematicians. Create your free dashboard at EdCuration and reach out to page-a-day math today. And while you're there, check out our Certified Ed Trustee program that allows you to influence the educational market and try before you buy with innovative new instructional resources. You'll also find our micro-professional learning explorations for educators, all free to teachers. Tune in again next week to the Ed Curation Podcast, 
where we're working with you to reshape learning.